Hey guys, welcome to another World Audiobooks. So excited we are starting a brand new audiobook today. I hope you guys enjoyed those indie author spots that we did. Again, if you or somebody that you know is an indie author and would like to have your work read on Another World, uh, just get in touch with me, anotherworldaudiobooks.gmail.com. All the links are in the show notes. So uh, yeah, we're getting into this new book, Treasure Island. Whether you've read it before or not, I really hope you enjoy it. I think it's a, it's a wonderful book and uh, it really has a lot of adventure and I've been having so much fun doing all the different different voices and stuff. So, without further ado, I give you Treasure Island. Treasure Island. Written by Robert Louis Stevenson. Narrated by Brady Smith. To the hesitating purchaser. If sailor tales to sailor tunes, storm and adventure, heat and cold, if schooners, islands and maroons, and buccaneers and buried gold, and all the old romance retold, exactly in the ancient way, can please as me they pleased of old, the wiser youngsters of today, so be it, and fall on, if not, if studious youth no longer crave, his ancient appetite forgot, Kingston or Baltane the brave, or Cooper of the wood and wave, so be it also, and may I, and all my pirates share the grave, where these and their creations lie. Treasure Island, Part 1, The Old Buccaneer 1. The Old Sea Dog at the Admiral Benbow Squire Trelawney, Dr. Livesey, and the rest of these gentlemen, having asked me to write down the whole particulars about Treasure Island, from the beginning to the end, keeping nothing back but the bearings of the island, and that only because there is still treasure not yet lifted, I take up my pen in the year of grace 1700, and go back to the time when my father kept the Admiral Benbow in, and the brown old seaman with the sabre cut first took up his lodging under our roof. I remember him as if it were yesterday— as he came plodding to the inn door, his sea-chest following behind him in a hand-barrow, a tall, strong, heavy, nut-brown man, his tarry pigtails falling over his shoulders, and his soiled blue coat, his hands ragged and scarred, with black, broken nails, and the sabre-cut across one cheek, a dirty, livid white. I remember him looking round the cover, and whistling to himself as he did so, and then breaking out in that old sea-song that he sang so often afterwards. Fifty men on the dead men's chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. In the high, old, tottering voice that seemed to have been tuned and broken as the capstan bars. Then he rapped on the door with a bit of stick like a handspike that he carried, and when my father appeared, called roughly for a glass of rum. This, when it was brought to him, he drank slowly, like a connoisseur, lingering on the taste and still looking about him at the cliffs and up at our signboard. "'This is a handy cove,' says he at length. "'And a pleasant-situated grop-shop. Much company, mate?' My father told him no, very little company, the more was a pity. "'Well, then,' said he, "'this is the berth for me. Here you, matey,' he cried to the man who trundled the barrow. "'Bring up alongside and help up my chest. I'll stay here a bit,' he continued." I'm a plain man. Rum and bacon and eggs is what I want, and that head up there for to watch ships off. What might you call me? You might call me Captain. Oh, I see what you're at there. And he threw down three or four gold pieces on the threshold. You can tell me when I work through that, says he, looking as fierce as a commander. And indeed, bad as his clothes were and coarsely as he spoke, he had none of the appearance of a man who sailed before the mass, but seemed like a mate or skipper accustomed to being obeyed or to strike. 
The man who came with the barrow told us the mail had set him down the morning before at the Royal George, that he had inquired what inns there were along the coast, and hearing ours well spoken of, I suppose, and described as lonely, had chosen it from the others for his place of residence, and that was all we could learn of our guest. He was a very silent man by custom. All day he hung round the cove or upon the cliffs with a brass telescope. All evening he sat in a corner of the parlour next to the fire and drank rum and water very strong. Mostly he would not speak when spoken to, only look up sudden and fierce and blow through his nose like a foghorn. And we and the people who came about our house soon learned to let him be. Every day when he came back from his stroll he would ask if any seafaring men had gone by along the road. At first we thought it was the want of company of his own kind that made him ask the question— but at last we began to see that he was desirous to avoid them. When a seaman did put up at the Admiral Benbow, as now and then some did, making by the coast road for Bristol, he would look in at him through the curtained door before he entered the parlour, and he was always sure to be as silent as a mouse when any such was present. For me, at least, there was no secret about the matter, for I was, in a way, a sharer in his alarms. He had taken me aside one day, and promised me a silver fourpenny on the first of every month, if I would only keep my weather eye open for a seafaring man with one leg, and let him know the moment he appeared. Often enough, when the first of the month came round, and I applied to him for my wage, he would only blow through his nose at me and stare me down, but before the week was out, he was sure to think better of it, bring me my fourpenny piece, and repeat his orders to look out for the seafaring man with one leg. How that personage haunted my dreams, I need scarcely tell you. On stormy nights, when the wind shook the four corners of the house, and the surf roared along the cove and up the cliffs, I would see him in a thousand forms, and with a thousand diabolical expressions. Now the leg would be cut off at the knee, now at the hip. Now he was a monstrous kind of a creature, who had never had but one leg, and that in the middle of his body. To see him leap and run and pursue me over the hedge and ditch was the worst of nightmares, and altogether I paid pretty dear for my monthly fourpenny piece, and in the shape of these abominable fancies. But though I was so terrified by the idea of a seafaring man with one leg, I was far less afraid of the captain himself than anybody else who knew him. There were nights when he took a deal more rum and water than his head would carry, and then he would sometimes sit and sing his wicked, old, wild sea-songs, minding nobody— but sometimes he would call for glasses round and force all the trembling company to listen to his stories or bear a chorus of his singing. Often I heard the house shaking with yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum, all the neighbours joining in for dear life, with the fear of death upon them, and each singing louder than the other to avoid remark. For in these fits he was the most overriding companion ever known, and he would slap his hand on the table for silence all round. He would fly up in a passion of anger at a question, or sometimes because none was put— and so he judged the company was not following his story, nor would he allow anyone to leave the inn till he had drunk himself sleepy and reeled off to bed. His stories were what frightened people worst of all. Dreadful stories they were, about hanging and walking the plank and storms at sea, and the dry tortugas, and the wild deeds in places of the Spanish main. By his own account, he must have lived his life among some of the wickedest men that God ever allowed upon the sea, and the language in which he told these stories shocked our plain country people almost as much as the crimes that he described. My father was always saying the inn would be ruined, for people would soon cease coming there to be tyrannized over and put down and sent shivering to their beds. But I really believe his presence did us good. People were frightened at the time, but on looking back they rather liked it. It was a fine excitement in a quiet country life, and there was even a party of the younger men who pretended to admire him, calling him a true sea-dog and a real old salt and such like names, and saying there was a sort of man that made England terrible at sea. In one way, indeed, he bade fair to ruin us, for he kept on staying week after week, 
and at last, month after month, so that all the money had been long exhausted, and still my father never plucked up the heart to insist on having more. If ever he mentioned it, the captain blew through his nose so loudly that you might say he roared, and stared my poor father out of the room. I have seen him wringing his hands after such a rebuff, and I am sure the annoyance and terror he lived in must have greatly hastened his early and unhappy death. All the time he lived with us, the captain made no change whatever in his dress, but to buy some stockings from a hawker. One of the corks of his hat having fallen down, he let it hang from that day forth, though it was a great annoyance when it blew. I remember the appearance of his coat, which he patched himself upstairs in his room, and which, before the end, was nothing but patches. He never wrote or received a letter, and he never spoke with any but the neighbours, and with these, for the most part, only when drunk on rum. The great sea-chest none of us ever had seen open. He was only once crossed, and that was towards the end, when my poor father was far gone in a decline that took him off. Dr. Livesey came late one afternoon to see the patient, took a bit of dinner from my mother, and went into the parlour to smoke a pipe, until his horse should come down from the hamlet, for we had no stabling at the old Benbow. I followed him in, and I remember observing the contrast the neat, bright doctor, with his powder as white as snow and his bright black eyes and pleasant manners, made with the cultish country folk, and above all with that filthy, heavy, bleared, scarecrow of a pirate of ours, sitting, far gone in rum, with his arms on the table, Suddenly he, the captain, that is, began to pipe up his eternal song. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. Drink and the devil had done for the rest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. At first I had supposed the dead man's chest to be that identical big box of his upstairs in the front room, and the thought had been mingled in my nightmares with that of the one-legged seafaring man, but by this time we had all long ceased to pay any particular notice to the song. It was new that night to nobody but Dr. Livesey, and on him I observed it did not produce an agreeable effect, for he looked up for a moment quite angrily before he went on with his talk to old Taylor, the gardener, on a new cure for the rheumatics. In the meantime, the captain gradually brightened up at his own music, and at last flapped his hand upon the table before him in a way we all knew to mean silence. The voices stopped at once, all but Dr. Livesey's, he went on as before, speaking clear and kind, and drawing briskly at his pipe between every word or two. The captain glared at him for a while, flapped his hand again, glared still harder, and at last broke out with a villainous low oath. Silence there between the decks. Were you addressing me, sir? says the doctor, and when the ruffian had told him, with another oath, that it was so. I have only one thing to say to you, sir, replies the doctor that if you keep on drinking rum, the world will soon be quit of a very dirty scoundrel. The old fellow's fury was awful. He sprang to his feet and drew and opened a sailor's clasp-knife, and balancing it open on the palm of his hand, threatened to pin the doctor to the wall. The doctor never so much as moved. He spoke to him as before, over his shoulder, and in the same tone of voice, rather high, so that all the room might hear, but perfectly calm and steady. If you do not put that knife this instant in your pocket, I promise, upon my honour, you shall hang at the next Aziz. Then followed a battle of looks between them, but the captain soon knuckled under, put up his weapon, and resumed his seat, grumbling like a beaten dog. And now, sir, continued the doctor, since I now know there is such a fellow in my district, you may count I'll have an eye upon you day and night. I am not a doctor only, I am a magistrate, and if I catch a breath of complaint against you— if it's only for a piece of incivility like tonight's, I'll take effectual means to have you hunted down and routed out of this. Let that suffice. Soon after, 
Dr. Livesey's horse came to the door, and he rode away, but the captain held his peace that evening, and for many evenings to come. Black Dog Appears and Disappears It was not very long after this that there occurred the first of the mysterious events that rid us at last of the captain, though not, as you will see, of his affairs. It was a bitter cold winter, with long, hard frosts and heavy gales, and it was plain from the first that my poor father was little likely to see the spring. He sank daily, and my mother and I had all the inn upon our hands, and were kept busy enough without paying much regard to our unpleasant guest. It was one January morning, very early, a pinching, frosty morning, the cove all grey with hoar-frost, the ripple lapping softly on the stones, the sun still low and only touching the hilltops and shining far to the seaward. The captain had risen earlier than usual and set out down the beach, his cutlass swinging under the broad skirts of the old blue coat, his brass telescope under his arm, his hat tilted back upon his head. I remember his breath hanging like smoke in his wake as he strode off, and the last sound I heard of him as he turned the big rock was a loud snort of indignation, as though his mind was still running upon Dr. Livesey. Well, mother was upstairs with father, and I was laying the breakfast table against the captain's return, when the parlour door opened, and a man stepped in, on whom I had never set my eyes before. He was a pale, tallowy creature, wanting two fingers on the left hand, and though he wore a cutlass, he did not look like much of a fighter. I had always my eye open for seafaring men, with one leg or two, and I remember this one puzzled me. He was not sailorly, and yet he had a smack of the sea about him, too. I asked him what was for his service, and he said he would take rum. But as I was going out of the room to fetch it, he sat down upon a table and motioned me to draw near. I paused where I was, with my napkin in my hand. "'Come here, Sonny,' says he. "'Come nearer here.' I took a step nearer. "'Is this here table for my mate Bill?' he asked with a kind of leer. I told him I did not know his mate Bill, and this was for a person who stayed in our house, whom we called the captain. "'Well,' said he, "'my mate Bill could be called the captain as like as not. He has a cut on one cheek and a mighty pleasant way with him, particularly in drink, as my mate Bill. We'll put it for argument, like, that your captain has a cut on one cheek, and we'll put it, if you like, that that cheek's the right one. Oh, well.' I told you. Now, is my mate Bill in this here house? I told him he was out walking. Which way, Sonny? Which way is he gone? And when I had pointed out the rock, and told him how the captain was likely to return, and how soon, and answered a few other questions. Ah, said he. This'll be as good as drink to my mate Bill. The expression on his face as he said these words was not at all pleasant, and I had my own reasons for thinking that the stranger was mistaken, even supposing he meant what he said. But it was no affair of mine, I thought, and besides, it was difficult to know what to do. The stranger kept hanging about just inside the inn door, peering round the corner like a cat waiting for a mouse. 
once I stepped out myself into the road, but he immediately called me back, and as I did not obey quick enough for his fancy, a most horrible change came over his tallowy face, and he ordered me in with an oath that made me jump. As soon as I was back again, he returned to his former manner, half fawning, half sneering, patted me on the shoulder, told me I was a good boy, and he had taken quite a fancy to me. "'I have a son of my own,' said he. "'As like you is two blocks, and he's all pride in my heart. "'But the great thing for boys is discipline, sonny, discipline. "'Now, if you had sailed along with Bill, "'you wouldn't have stood there to be spoke for twice, not you. "'That was never Bill's way, nor the way of such as sailed with him. "'And here, sure enough, is my mate Bill, "'with a spyglass under his arm, bless his old heart to be sure.' You and me'll go back into the parlour, sonny, and get beyond the door, and we'll give Bill a little surprise, and bless his heart, I say again. So saying, the stranger backed along with me into the parlour, and put me behind the corner so that we were both hidden by the open door. I was very uneasy and alarmed, as you may fancy, and it rather added to my fears to observe that the stranger was certainly frightened himself. He cleared the hilt of his cutlass, and loosened a blade in the sheath. And all the time we were waiting there, he kept swallowing, as if he felt what we used to call a lump in his throat. At last, in strode the captain, slammed the door behind him, without looking to the right or left, and marched straight across the room to where his breakfast awaited him. "'Bill,' said the stranger in a voice that I thought he had tried to make bold and big. The captain spun round on his heel and fronted us. All the brown had gone out of his face, and even his nose was blue— he had the look of a man who sees a ghost, or the evil one, or something worse, if anything can be, and upon my word, I felt sorry to see him all in a moment turn so old and sick. Come, Bill, you know me. You know an old shipmate, Bill, surely, said the stranger. The captain made a sort of gasp. Black dog, said he. And you, Oche? returned the other, getting more at his ease. Black dog, as ever was, come for to see his old shipmate Billy at the Admiral Benbow Inn. Ah, oh, Bill, Bill, we have seen a sorry times, us two, since I lost him two talons. Holding up his mutilated hand. Now look here, said the captain. You've run me down. Here I am. Well, then, speak up. What is it? That's you, Bill, returned Black Dog. "'You're in the rot of it, Billy. "'I'll have a glass of rum from this dear child here, "'as I've took such a liking to, "'and we'll sit down, if you please, and talk square, like old shipmates.' "'When I returned with the rum, "'they were already seated on either side of the captain's breakfast table, "'black dog next to the door, and sitting sideways, "'so as to have one eye on his old shipmate and one, "'as I thought, on his retreat. "'He bade me go, and leave the door wide open.' "'None of your keyholes for me, sonny,' he said, and I left them together and retired into the bar. For a long time, though I certainly did my best to listen, I could hear nothing but a low gattling, but at last the voices began to grow higher, and I could pick up a word or two, mostly oaths from the captain. "'No, no, no! And an end of it!' he cried once, and again. "'If he comes to swinging, swing all, say I!' Then, all of a sudden, there was a tremendous explosion of oaths and other noises. The chair and table went over in a lump, a clash of steel followed, and then a cry of pain, and the next instant I saw Black Dog in full flight, and the captain hotly pursuing, both with drawn cutlasses, and the former streaming blood from the left shoulder. 
Just at the door, the captain aimed at the fugitive one last tremendous cut, which would certainly have split him to the kine had it not been intercepted by our big signboard of Admiral Benbow. You may see the notch on the lower side of the frame to this day. That blow was the last of the battle. Once out upon the road, Black Dog, in spite of his wound, showed a wonderful clean pair of heels, and disappeared over the edge of the hill in half a minute. The captain, for his part, stood staring at the signboard like a bewildered man. Then he passed his hand over his eyes several times, and at last turned back into the house. "'Jim,' says he, "'Rum!' And as he spoke, he reeled a little, and caught himself with one hand against the wall. "'Are you hurt?' cried I. "'Rum!' he repeated. "'I must get away from here. Rum! Rum!' I ran to fetch it, but I was quite unsteadied by all that had fallen out, and I broke one glass and fouled the tap, and while I was still getting in my own way, I heard a loud fall in the parlour, and running in, beheld the captain lying full length upon the floor. At the same instant my mother, alarmed by the cries and fighting, came running downstairs to help me. Between us we raised his head. He was breathing very loud and hard, but his eyes were closed, and his face a horrible colour. "'Dear, dearie me!' cried my mother. "'What a disgrace upon the house, and your poor father sick!' In the meantime, we had no idea what to do to help the captain, nor any other thought but that he had got his death hurt in the scuffle with the stranger. I got the rum, to be sure, and tried to put it down his throat, but his teeth were tightly shut, and his jaws as strong as iron. It was a happy relief for us when the door opened, and Dr. Livesey came in on his visit to my father. "'Oh, doctor!' my mother cried. "'What shall we do?' "'Where is he wounded?' "'Wounded? A <laughs> fiddlestick's end,' said the doctor. "'No more wounded than you or I. "'The man has had a stroke, as I warned him. "'Now, Mrs. Hawkins, just you run upstairs to your husband "'and tell him, if possible, nothing about it. "'For my part, I must do my best to save this fellow's terribly worthless life. "'Jim, you get me a basin.' "'When I got back with the basin, "'the doctor had already ripped up the captain's sleeve "'and exposed his great sinewy arm. "'It was tattooed in several places.' Here's luck, a fair wind, and Billy Bones, his fancy, were very neatly and clearly executed on the forearm, and up near the shoulder there was a sketch of a gallows, and a man hanging from it, done, as I thought, with great spirit. Prophetic, said the doctor, touching this picture with his finger. And now, Master Billy Bones, if that be your name, we'll have a look at the colour of your blood. Jim, he said, are you afraid of blood? "'No, sir,' said I. "'Well, then,' said he, "'you hold the basin.' And with that he took his lancet and opened a vein. A great deal of blood was taken before the captain opened his eyes and looked mistily about him. First he recognized the doctor with an unmistakable frown. Then his glance fell upon me, and he looked relieved. But suddenly his color changed, and he tried to raise himself, crying, "'Where's Black Dog?' "'There is no Black Dog here.' said the doctor. Except what you have got on your back. You have been drinking rum. You have had a stroke, precisely as I told you, and I have just, very much against your own will, dragged you head foremost out of the grave. Now, Mr. Bones— That's not my name, he interrupted. Much I care, returned the doctor. It's the name of a buccaneer of my acquaintance, and I call you by it for the sake of shortness, and what I have to say to you is this— one glass of rum won't kill you, but if you take one, you'll take another and another, and I stake my wig if you don't break off short, you'll die. Do you understand that? Die, and go to your own place like a man in the Bible. Come now, make an effort. 
I'll help you to your bed for once. Between us, with much trouble, we managed to hoist him upstairs and laid him on his bed, where his head fell back on the pillow, as if he were almost fainting. Now, mind you, said the doctor, I clear my conscience. The name of rum for you is death. And with that, he went off to see my father, taking me with him by the arm. This is nothing, he said as soon as he had closed the door. I have drawn blood enough to keep him quiet a while. He should lie for a week where he is. That is the best thing for him, and you. But another stroke would settle him. All right, thanks so much, guys, for tuning in today. Really appreciate you just listening to the podcast. And remember to share it with somebody that you know who would enjoy a free audiobook. Because uh, at this point, we've got, I don't know, five, six, seven different audiobooks and uh, more to come. So continue listening, continue sharing the podcast with people that you know. I would still be interested if you or somebody that you know might uh, be interested in helping me uh, with editing the podcast. That is uh, the part that takes the longest in this process. And would if I could get somebody who could help me with that, either on a volunteer basis or if somebody wanted to fund me uh, hiring an editor, that would uh, make all the difference in the world for me to be able to, to get out more content to you guys more often. I'd love to do uh, two episodes a week or, or just longer episodes or whatever just to get you guys more content but I can't really do that until I get an editor, uh, which can't really uh, afford right now. So if uh, some you or somebody that you know would like to volunteer or maybe help fund that, just uh, loved, would love to talk with you. Again, all the links are in the show notes for how to get in touch with the podcast. And with that, I will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Don't worry, you aren't the only one. You aren't the only business that needs help. You aren't the only person that has a hard time finding the right help at the right price. This is where Business Bloodline becomes your bloodline to temporary and permanent staffing. Business Bloodline specializes in hiring internet workers to creatively solve problems for your business. Business Bloodline does all the vetting and only delivers candidates that make sense for your needs and at a cost that you can afford. But 60 seconds isn't enough for me to tell you why hiring through Business Bloodline is safer, cheaper, and less time-consuming. We would rather show you. To get more information or a business consultation, visit businessbloodline.com. If the job can be done on a computer, Business Bloodline can find a match. Visit businessbloodline.com and tell them that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get 10% off your first hire. Remember to mention that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get that 10% off. Businessbloodline.com